0: Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you all today. You know, our kids, we have two kids, seven and four. Our kids have um, a habit of collecting things. I don't know if any other parents or caregivers in the room can identify with that. I don't know why, but there is basically nothing that is not worthy of collection to them. Rocks, a lot of rocks, twigs, literal garbage, you name it. They will keep it. I routinely walk into their rooms and find myself muttering under my breath, where did all of this stuff come from? And I get it, because we moved to a different house about six years ago, and there's nothing quite like moving that will reveal the amount of worthless, unnecessary stuff, yes, maybe even literal garbage, that you are willing to not only hang on to, but haul to a new house, or... Throw into a storage unit, never laying eyes on it again until the next time you move it. If you have a storage unit right now, this is not a criticism. Um, There are situations that call for it. I think the issue is bigger, and it's one that touches all of us, or most of us probably. Storage units, closets, storage rooms in a basement, an Amazon shopping cart, our credit card and bank statements, all of these things can reveal that at times we have come to the belief that acquiring stuff will satisfy our deepest longings or lead us into a place of fulfillment. And according to Jesus, it's a lie. So today we return to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, we've reached the midway point in this sermon where we've spent much of our time throughout the spring, and in this section of the sermon, Jesus turns his attention to wealth and accumulation and the spiritual dangers they can represent. This conversation is uncomfortable, I get it, but Jesus doesn't shy away from it at all. Quite the contrary, he addresses these issues Quite often, and he does so in a much less affluent society than the one we find ourselves in. So I'm afraid it would be incredibly naive or maybe more like willful ignorance for us to pretend that these warnings or instructions on this topic are no longer relevant or less important now or we don't need to be reminded of them nearly as much. Surely they are as important as ever. Maybe we need to be reminded of these issues more often than ever. Where did all of this stuff come from? We begin in Matthew 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't lay up, store treasures on earth. Laying up treasures on earth. This sounds an awful lot like the materialism of our age. Now, a conversation uh, about materialism must not devolve into the unhelpful and untrue argument that the material world is unimportant or that it is less good than the unseen spiritual world. That sort of dualism is not representative of the biblical witness. However, There is a materialism that I think we often absorb, at least one that I often absorb, that insists that our worth is determined by what we possess. Or if not our worth, certainly our happiness, our meaning, our fulfillment, these things are tied to what we own. The life of simplicity that I think Jesus invites his followers into rejects that notion that our worth is tied to the stuff we own. Again, my point today is not to suggest that the material goods that we use are somehow innately evil. I'm not promoting a rejection of the economy. I'm not promoting a rejection of consuming goods altogether. That doesn't make sense. Life without consumption is an impossibility. It is a part of life, and it can be a very Good part of life. I mean, imagine a world where we don't have to eat food to stay alive. We just plug in at the end of the day and recharge or refuel our bodies overnight while we sleep like a robot. It sounds awful. We, we would miss out on some incredible parts of life. I mean, think about the delight of tacos or the delight of a good cup of coffee. To be honest, I'm not sure I want to live in a world without a good cup of coffee. I say that in jest, but only kind of. There is a lot of delight in consumption. It is a part of being human, and I think a good gift. We'll talk more about this next week as we continue the conversation, but simple living doesn't reject consumption. But it does, I think, resist that materialistic impulse to find our worth or our meaning, satisfaction in what we consume or possess. It recognizes consumption for what it is: it's necessary, it is good, even a beautiful part of life to be enjoyed. But. In the midst of that recognition, we also want to be willing to defiantly declare, while I use goods to satisfy needs and I do experience some delight in that process, I never want to allow those goods, wealth, the things I possess, to control or dominate me. Maybe you recall that section from Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church, where he addresses, specifically he's talking about the rampant, intemperate sexual conduct within the church. And presumably, conduct that was excused with a popular slogan of that time and place. All things are lawful. Or another one like it. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach meant for food. In other words, they seem to have bought into the cultural creed that says whatever we crave or desire, it's okay. It is our right to satisfy that craving, and Paul says, well, not really if you are in Christ. Now, he's specifically addressing sexual conduct, but perhaps, and I think if you read all of that letter, we find that this is true. Maybe this principle applies more broadly. Maybe even to this issue we're thinking about today. Sure, all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Not everything is helpful. Not every craving is good or leads to health. I will not be dominated by anything. So in the context of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, again, we are consumers. We use treasures. We use stuff. We use products and consume goods, but we always keep that perspective in mind while we use the stuff we own. We don't want to allow that stuff to own or dominate us. So Jesus seems to be dressing what we might broadly understand culturally as the rat race, right? It's that straining and fighting to Store up, lay up, hoard treasures on earth. But as it has been said, if you win the rat race, what are you? You're you're still a rat. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, we've been created as beings who consume, and our consumption meets many basic needs we have. The problem emerges, though, when we begin to buy into the idea that accumulating Using, consuming, or possessing brings meaning to our lives. And, of course, it never does. Like we talked about a few weeks ago when we were having a conversation about winning the approval of others. And the problem of playing that game is that the goalposts continued to move. And I think the same is true when it comes to this issue. Well, I think if I could just acquire that thing or if I could move into that place of financial freedom or finally reach that specific tax bracket, then I could put it on autopilot, and I could just coast. That rarely happens though, because what happens? Well, the goals just continue to get bigger. I got that thing, but now there's something else. There's a new shiny toy. There's a new goal in sight. It's like the the business tycoon John Rockefeller. When asked, how much is enough? Famously replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. It's always a little bit more. So a question I think that we might do well to ask ourselves, is financial gain or accumulation the thing that we think will bring fulfillment? And of course, this can be tempered. I'm, I'm not suggesting, if you know me at all, you know this to be true. I'm not suggesting that wise financial management or proper financial planning, that those are evils to be shunned. I, I don't need to think about my financial future because Jesus is coming back and I'm not going to reach retirement age, right? So I, don't, I, I can completely put that off of my radar. Or I just want to do everything I can to spend every penny and get every ounce of joy out of today that I can. This is not, I don't think, an invitation into fiscal foolishness. Like, because none of this matters, I don't want to lay up treasures on earth, so I'm going to spend my life savings buying a, a heap of rare baseball cards. That, yes, maybe they used to be valuable, but now their only value is in the ability to attach them to your bicycle spokes with clothespins and make your bicycle sound like a motorcycle. Like the boomers. At least the boomer that I was raised with. <laughs> I, I'm still a little bitter that I didn't get those valuable baseball cards because they were used on a bicycle. Financial wisdom, I think, is important. The question is how do we understand and define financial wisdom as followers of Jesus? It isn't money itself that is the root of all evil we are taught, it is the love of it, it is the obsession with it. Financial wisdom, fiscal responsibility, I think, is good, but Perhaps it can be taken to the extreme where financial responsibility morphs into what is really financial irresponsibility, at least spiritually speaking. And I think Jesus alludes to a few things that reveal whether we are on that dangerous trajectory. We'll talk about some of these next week, but here some of them are. Worry, obsession, self-centeredness. Is money or stuff the source of a lot of worry in my life? Are we obsessed with acquiring more and more and more, just a little bit more and I'll be happy? Does that take up an inordinate amount of mental space? Finally, is our personal financial management completely self-centered? Is it all about... What I am feeling and what I am trying to achieve. When is enough enough? Am I, I, I don't think he likes it. I get it. I don't either. Am I looking to financial freedom or accumulation as the thing that will bring me fulfillment or meaning? You know, G.K. Chesterton famously said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to need less helping provide for my needs, helping provide for my family's needs, and having some margin financially to be able to assist others who find themselves in hard times, I think those are good goals and worthy pursuits. But unlimited personal wealth or something as nebulous as generational wealth, those are not primary goals for followers of Jesus. Not because wealth is inherently evil, but it does present unique challenges for those who follow Jesus. Furthermore, as Jesus points to here, while money can address some of the needs that we have, some of those most basic needs, not all of our needs can be met through material gain. Actually, some of our most pressing needs as human beings cannot be met through accumulation. In fact, a never-ending need or desire to get just a little bit more might make it all but impossible to develop the one thing I need most as a human being, which is a healthy soul. Our culture teaches us we can, we can have it all. We can have unlimited wealth, and that can be our sole pursuit in life, and we can have a healthy soul. We can have our cake and eat it, too. We, we can have the best of both worlds. Anything we lay eyes on or desire, it can be ours. But Jesus teaches us we can't actually have it all. And if we do constantly work to have it all, we might, in the end, lose what is most important. What good is it if we gain the whole world but forfeit or lose our souls? In our societal paradigm, money is power. So, money has the ability to secure the future I want. And I think Jesus warns that this is always going to be a losing game, primarily because of what it does to us. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus moves directly from this part of the conversation into a conversation about anxiety and worry about what we will eat and drink and wear, how we will meet those most basic needs. We'll talk about that more next week, but if our hope is in material goods, we will always be playing this game where we're trying to keep up because material goods, as Jesus says here, do not last. Those of you who own a home probably know this to be true. We are in the middle of replacing a deck at our house. If you've talked to me in the past month, you've probably heard me bemoaning this project. When we do major house projects, there are various stages that I always go through. The first one is a sense of foreboding at the scope of the project, then a sense of foreboding at sticker shock when I realize the cost of the project, and then, you know, as we get into it, I'm move into this state where I'm happy and excited that we chose to do the work ourselves, and things are coming together. And then a little bit beyond the halfway point, I'm ready to scrap it all. Let's forget the deck, put the house on the market. We'll just move on. Somebody will surely buy it as is. That is where we're currently at in in the project. So if you're looking to relocate, you can talk to me after our service. All that to say we're we're building a deck. The one that we dismantled had a good long life, but it didn't last. The one that we are currently building will not last. At some point, it is going to have to be rebuilt, just not by me. Don't let that be my fate. I I can't take that again. The point is that stuff corrodes. It's destroyed by pests. It breaks down over time. If you have a car that spends more time in your mechanic's garage than it does in your own garage, you know this to be true. If you have food that sits on your counter for a couple of weeks, you see that process of decay take place. It doesn't last. So why would we put our hope and our trust in something that is itself not secure? This is the wisdom we find in Proverbs 23. We're counseled in this way. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward the heaven. Have you ever felt that? If we hitch our sense of fulfillment or security or joy to an object that has a very limited lifespan, our fulfillment, security, and joy will always be up in the air. It's what the author of Ecclesiastes refers to as vanity, meaningless. It's a chasing of the wind, something that you're never going to grasp. Why in the world am I toiling, working for something that probably isn't going to satisfy and certainly isn't going to last. In typical cheery fashion, this is what we read in Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. It doesn't satisfy. Never enough. You, you get more, the author of Ecclesiastes says, but there there are more demands. This is one of the principles behind lifestyle creep. I think it's something that plagues most upwardly mobile societies. Yes, your salary or your income may increase, but inflation, man. Or you slowly start to have more dependence. Or you slowly develop more expensive tastes. And even though you have more, it doesn't go nearly as far and even if you do move the needle on your net assets your happiness quotient doesn't really change all that much and to be fair economic studies show that money can increase happiness to a certain extent which to be honest makes some sense to me because inf- increased financial margin means that all of my most basic needs will be satisfied or met, and maybe I will have less money-related stress, and, and that can feel really good and can be, uh, lead to a sense of increased happiness, but Jesus even bucks that traditional wisdom and says, for my people, whether in want or plenty, contentment is possible. And contentment with whatever situation we find ourselves in will be a source of happiness and true joy that is not dependent on the security of current assets that are completely insecure. It will not depend on the security or the acquisition of new assets that I may not be able to get anyway, and once I get them, they probably won't satisfy so we're going to continue this conversation next week, but this is the, the question that I want to leave us with today. Have we or do we ever find ourselves displacing God with money or goods? It's a simple question, but one that, at least for me, is difficult. Requires some, some courage to actually examine my life. Do we ever displace God with money or goods. Jesus says here, it is impossible to serve God and mammon. Sure, money can make it easier in certain ways. Um, It can lead to uh, less stress in certain ways. But if we begin to serve money, if that is what our heart and our mind is all wrapped up in, if we begin to look to money as the source of freedom and security, it is actually going to end up enslaving us. It it isn't going to lead us into freedom. So Jesus says, learn this simple lesson from the moth. Nature is going to eat away at your stuff. Learn the lesson of rust. Time is slowly going to corrode or eat away at the stuff you own. Learn the lesson of humanity. Humans may break in and steal the stuff that you have. Either way, it is not secure. It just isn't. If we think our security is tied to something that is itself not secure, we will drive ourselves mad attempting to do the impossible. So the invitation is this may we return again to the only source of true hope, joy, and meaning. It is not in our ability to accumulate wealth or goods, something that is not secure. It is in Jesus Christ alone. I know that sounds trite, but I believe it to be true. Our only source of hope Joy, security that is meaningful in any sense is the life that we find in Jesus Christ. I invite you this morning as we come to the table to be reminded of that fact and to receive that life afresh. Would you stand as we begin to gather around the table of our Lord? We'll invite you in a moment to join us at the table when you get up here. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, somebody will be here and... Speak over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. I invite you to receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ. I want to say a prayer. Also, um, if you are in need of prayer, if you have a specific need um, that you'd like somebody to agree with you in prayer for, Tim and Beth are going to be available for prayer. Are you going to be up here? Up here at the front. So, if you would like prayer, um, please uh, feel free to see Tim and Beth. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation, and then we'll gather to celebrate the life we have in Jesus Christ around his table. Lord Jesus, give us courage this morning to take an inventory of our hearts and our minds. to take seriously this invitation to identify where our treasure is, knowing that that is where our heart is and that's where our life is headed. Give us courage to resist that incredibly strong pull and to return to you as the only source of life, joy, contentment. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that he leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?